0: Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski. And today I bring you a special episode from Marie Farr, a hospital medicine fellow here in Cincinnati. And she's a member of the Popcorn Network. And Popcorn stands for the Pediatric Overflow Planning Contingency Response Network. You know that I'm a sucker for good acronyms. The Popcorn Network is really focused on delivering great educational materials and health systems operations assistance to folks like myself and providers across the country that are dealing with an influx of adult patients during the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's episode is going to focus on the management of stroke in adults. So take it away, Marie.
1: Hi, everyone. My name is Marie Farr. I'm a first-year Pediatric Hospital Medicine Fellow at Cincinnati Children's. I'm also a MedPeds-trained physician. I am part of the Pediatric Overflow Planning Contingency Response Network, or POPCORN for short. This is a newly formed collaborative network with over 300 contributors who have come together to help prepare providers, pediatricians in particular, who may not have received specific training in internal medicine. Our group is made up of medical students, residents, advanced practice providers, and physicians from internal medicine, med-peds, family medicine, pediatrics, and other specialties. The primary goal of our network is to help support the safe offloading and care for adults, possibly in pediatric focus centers. We have working groups focused on health system operations, equity, educational materials and resources, social media and communications, and of course, an outcomes and metrics work group so we can improve each day. You can find us at popcornnetwork.org, with only one N, or on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all with the same handle. Today, I will be discussing a condition that we more commonly see in adults. We are discussing strokes. So what is a stroke? A stroke is an acute neurologic injury that occurs when there is poor blood flow to the brain and results in cell death. Although more common in older adults, strokes also occur in neonates, infants, children, and young adults, resulting in significant morbidity and mortality. There are two different types of strokes. The first type is called an ischemic stroke, and this is a result of vascular occlusion caused by thrombosis, embolism, or systemic hypoperfusion. These causes include large vessel atherosclerosis disease, small vessel microvascular disease, and even cardiac emboli, The second type is called a hemorrhagic stroke, and this is the result of ruptured intracranial vessels. There are two types of hemorrhages. We talk about intracerebral and subarachnoid hemorrhages. Causes for these include hypertension or even aneurysm rupture. Overall, in the United States, there are about 87% of strokes are due to ischemia and 13% are due to hemorrhage. There are certainly many risk factors for developing a stroke. We know that hypertension is the most common and the most important stroke risk factor. We know that there are others including hyperlipidemia, smoking, diabetes, heart disease, history of prior stroke, heart arrhythmia, history of congenital heart disease, presence of known bleeding disorder or on anticoagulation, hypercoagulable state, oral contraceptive, and hormone replacement therapy. So when should I be concerned that my patient might have had a stroke? So if my patient has had sudden onset of focal neurological deficit, if they're having acute altered mental status plus known risk factors for stroke, if they have a seizure with persistent focal deficits, all reasons to be concerned. Now, certainly we think about our differential diagnosis with somebody that we might be thinking might be having a stroke. Um, Could it be a migraine with an aura? Could it be a seizure with post-ictal paralysis? a CNS tumor abscess, multiple sclerosis, viral encephalitis, or even a cerebral venous thrombosis. So we're going to spend some time discussing what your initial evaluation of a patient should be if you're concerned that they are having a stroke. Overall goals of this initial evaluation include ensuring medical stability. You want to quickly reverse any condition that could be contributing to the patient's problem. You want to determine what kind of stroke they had. For example, if they had an acute ischemic stroke, they may be a candidate for intravenous thrombolytic therapy or endovascular thrombectomy, which we will talk about a little bit later. So first things first, ABC, airway, breathing, circulation. Check out their vital signs, ensure a stable airway, provide oxygen if needed. You're also going to want to be obtaining a rapid but accurate history. So things you want to focus on, last known well. This is the time that a person was last known to be without the deficit. Note, this is not the time the deficit was discovered, but when the patient was last known to be at their neurological baseline. You also wanna know what kind of activity they were doing at the onset of the stroke, any past medical history and certainly risk factors, and any symptoms they may be experiencing. In the meantime, you should also be getting a point of care glucose. Um, So we know that hypoglycemia can cause focal neurological deficits mimicking stroke, We also know that severe hypoglycemia can be harmful to the brain, so it's important to check that blood sugar and correct it if needed. Next is our neurological examination. So we use something called the NIHSS, which is the National Institute of Health Stroke Scale. So there are actually many scales that are uh, available, and they just basically provide a structured way to quantify. A neurological examination, but this one um, is probably the most widely used and um, is validated. So it's composed of 11 items Um, and total you can get a score of 0 up to 42. And so it focuses on things like level of consciousness, cranial nerves, arm and leg movement, limb ataxia, sensation, language, dysarthria, and more. The level of stroke severity as measured by the NIH Stroke Scale is as follows. 0, no stroke, 1 to 4, minor stroke, 5 to 15, moderate stroke, 15 to 20, moderate to severe stroke, 21 to 42, severe stroke. Next in your management, you're going to want to activate the stroke team if available. So this team is usually um, made up of several individuals, but usually includes an adult neurologist. And this team's goal is to facilitate treatment for your patient um, in which that you are concerned they are having an acute stroke. So next in your management, you're going to be thinking about ordering brain imaging. And why is this important? This is going to help differentiate ischemia from hemorrhage. In addition, it's going to help us exclude stroke mimics, such as a CNS tumor. Lastly, it's going to help guide treatment. So it's going to help us determine what your patient can qualify for um, as far as treatment options. So what type of imaging can you consider? Your two are available imaging modalities will be your non-contrast head CT or MRI brain. Non-contrast head CT is a preferred imaging modality for early stroke evaluation at most centers because um, of its widespread availability, its rapid scan time, and ease of detecting intracranial hemorrhage. Some individuals will also order a a CT angiography at the same time of a non-contrast head CT. Um, And this will provide assessment uh, of the site of the vascular occlusion and sometimes provide more information about collateral circulation and salvageable brain tissue. Your radiological findings will help determine your next steps. If your non-contrast head CT shows intracranial hemorrhage, urgent neurosurgery consultation is needed. If not available at your institution, immediately transferred to another facility where neurosurgery is available. If your non-contrast head ct shows signs of ischemic stroke, you will need to discuss and decide if your patient is a candidate for intravenous thrombolytic therapy or mechanical thrombectomy. Other immediate studies to think about during your initial evaluation could be an EKG. This is an important test to detect possible uh, acute cardiac ischemia. Remember that folks that in the setting of an acute stroke may not be able to report symptoms of chest pain or other symptoms that can be concerning for a myocardial infarction. In addition, um, other blood work can be obtained during your initial evaluation and this can include a complete blood count including platelets, troponin, and coagulation studies. So now we're going to talk about emergent treatment of ischemic strokes. We already mentioned something called intravenous thrombolytic therapy. So this is recombinant tissue plasminogen activator, or RTPA. It's really important to review both the inclusion and the exclusion criteria for this medication. Inclusion criteria includes a clinical diagnosis of ischemic stroke. Onset of symptoms have to be less than four and a half hours before beginning treatment. And if the exact time of stroke is not known, it is defined as the time the patient was known to be normal or at their neurological baseline. Patients must also be greater than 18 years of age. Exclusion criteria and warnings are listed in the package insert of the medication, but some major contraindications to think about include active bleeding, reduced clotting ability, or if your patient is at high risk for bleeding. In addition, if a systolic blood pressure is greater than or equal to 185, or a diastolic blood pressure greater than or equal to 110, that is also a contraindication to using RTPA. We also mentioned something called endovascular treatment or mechanical thrombectomy, and that's indicated for patients with acute ischemic strokes due to large artery occlusion in the anterior circulation. This must be done within 24 hours of symptom onset or time last known to be well, regardless of whether they receive intravenous TPA. Other therapy to discuss includes antiplatelet therapy. So we know that anti platelet therapy is used for both the management of acute ischemic stroke and for the prevention of stroke. We also know that starting antiplatelet therapy, such as aspirin, within 48 hours of stroke onset is really important unless contraindicated. And this is where neurology guidance is going to be really helpful in determining who is a candidate for starting antiplatelet therapy and the antiplatelet therapy plan moving forward. Note, really important, that no antithrombotic agents or antiplatelet therapy should be initiated within the first 24 hours following treatment of intravenous TPA. So we discussed initial assessment of a patient who we may be concerned is having a stroke, and we also discuss emergent treatment to consider if a patient is having an ischemic stroke. But there are a few other management steps to think about throughout this process, and especially in the first few days after the patient suffers a stroke. One thing to think about is blood pressure management, So if your patient received TPA, you're going to want to keep their blood pressure less than 180 over 105 for the first 24 hours. If they did not receive TPA, you can allow for something called permissive hypertension, and that's going to be blood pressure less than 220 over 120 for the first 24 hours. So we only really treat if the numbers are higher than that, or if the patient has another clear indication, such as aortic dissection or hypertensive encephalopathy, to name a few. And if treatment is indicated, we suggest cautious lowering. So oftentimes we will lower only by 15% in the first 24 hours after a stroke onset. So other things to think about, and again, this is hopefully with neurology guidance, is managing volume depletion electrolyte disturbances. You wanna optimize the head of the bed. So for patients that we know can be at risk for elevated intracranial pressure or things like aspiration, it can be helpful to elevate the head of the bed to 30 degrees. We also want to assess swallowing and prevent aspiration risks. We want to evaluate and treat any fevers. Our goal is really to maintain normal thermia. And also really trying to get these patients in a stroke stroke unit. We know that care in a dedicated stroke unit is associated with better outcomes. So thanks for listening. That was um, stroke in a nutshell. Um certainly we will be listing resources used for this podcast and thanks again for Pem Currents for collaborating with the Popcorn Network. We really appreciate it and we hope that this was helpful. Thank you.
0: Well, that's all for this episode of Pem Currents the Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast. I hope it served as an effective primer for stroke in adults. You may be tasked with seeing patients that are outside of your comfort zone as the COVID-19 pandemic wears on. Hopefully, resources like these, which can be found at popcornnetwork.org, will help you and your colleagues be better prepared. For more great educational content, check out pemblog.com. Subscribe to the podcast via Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite service. Follow me on Twitter at PemTweets, and check out the PemTweets Facebook page. And if you could spare the time, I'd love if you left a comment or a review, as I'd really appreciate the feedback. Until next time, for PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Sobolewski.